Well, it's been a great time of praise and worship this morning, and many, many thanks once again to Pastor Brad Woods and his entire team this morning leading us so powerfully and effectively once again. And know that we're all looking forward to the time when voices can be raised together to our Lord in wonderful praise and worship. I'm excited to get into the Word this morning. If you have a Bible with you, and I hope you do, uh, come to the second book of the Bible, <clears throat> the book of, uh, of Exodus, and we'll be in Exodus chapter 17 uh, for just a few minutes. This is a very familiar passage of Scripture, one that I thought was a very apropos for these days and times in which we're living. I want to talk with you for a few minutes this morning on the subject, when weary hands need lifting. One of the major themes of the book of Exodus is the revelation of God. We're reminded page after page in this perhaps most familiar of all Old Testament books that it's not Moses who's the hero of the book of Exodus, but God himself. He's a God who longs to reveal himself, a God who longs to make himself known. And uh, he wants us to know his power and his might, and his incredible authority. All throughout the first 16 chapters of the book of Exodus, that's exactly what God has been doing. He's been revealing himself in miraculous ways. He begins, uh, first of all, of course, to Moses at the burning bush, revealing his identity in his call to Moses to lead his people out of 400 years of Egyptian bondage. And then God reveals himself magnificently to Pharaoh and to the Egyptian people, indeed to the people of Israel, through a series of miraculous signs that we've come to know as plagues. And as the people of God are finally <clears throat> released from Egyptian slavery, they begin a journey of what should have been a relatively brief period of time through the desert to the promised land, and along the way, God systematically reveals himself to his people with practically every step. And not just once, he does it over and over and over again. He leads them with a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day at the Red Sea where God miraculously parts the waters and provides a crossing on dry ground. God shows up and reveals His power and His might and His authority. At a place called Mara, where bitter water was made sweet so that God's people could drink and refresh themselves, that was God revealing Himself. God reveals Himself at the oasis of Elim where he provides 12 freshwater springs and 70 palm trees to refresh his parched and barren people. And then God reveals himself at the wilderness of sin, where he, in response to the incredible hunger of the people of God, provides manna and quail to satisfy the longings of his people. Today, as we come to Exodus chapter 17, we find these bedraggled Israelites encamped there at Rephidim. Only now they face a different kind of adversary. It's not heat, it's not thirst, it's not hunger, it's not a massive body of water. It is an adversary, 
but of a different kind. Let's take a look at our text beginning in Exodus 17 and verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hand grew weary. So they took up a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Now let's pause here for just a few minutes and kind of work our way through this passage uh, this morning, organizing it, if we can, around three very important principles, the first of which is simply this, as a reminder, namely, life is a battle. Now, that should come as no surprise to you. We face battles every single day in our life, and there's no question. The Bible teaches regularly and frequently that life is filled with spiritual and physical battles that we constantly seem to face. This is why so much of the language of the New Testament, for example, seems to focus our attention on things like struggle and laboring even at times reminding us that we're engaged in a fight itself. Paul will tell Timothy, for example, to fight the good fight of faith. And this is an important lesson that Israel needs to learn here at Rephidim, where for the first time since they crossed the Red Sea, the nation encounters an adversary. Not the first time they'd encountered an adversary, but the first time they'd encountered this kind of adversary. It was the first time they'd encountered an opponent from outside of the camp itself. You know, most of the time, the challenges that we face and the adversaries that we face tend to come from inside the camp rather than outside the camp. That tends to be true with our families. Most of the pressing battles that we fight at home are battles with our spouses and battles with our children. Sometimes the most pressing battles we face are battles at work with people that are associated with us in work. Same is absolutely true for the church, where the biggest and most threatening battles that we face aren't from the community. They aren't usually from the government, though sometimes that can be the case. Most of the time, it is not. Most of the battles that we face in terms of the body of Christ do not come from outside the camp, but from inside the camp. Spiritual division inside the body of Christ. And that had surely been the case for the nation of Israel up to this point. They had murmured and they had backbitten and they were divided and disunified every which way from Sunday. There were uncomfortable circumstances like the lack of food and the lack of water, and that inevitably led to division inside the camp, fractured relationships with their leaders fractured relationships with one another, but now we have an enemy approaching Israel from outside of the camp. And that had happened since the day they crossed the Red Sea when they had, Israel, or they had Egypt and the cavalry of Pharaoh nipping at their heels coming up quickly from the rear. Verse 8, then Amalek came 
and fought with Israel at Rephidim. Now these, of course, are the famous Amalekites that we'll read about for the next several hundred years of Israel's history. The Amalekites, of course, were a scavenging people. They preyed on the weak and vulnerable. They made their living from stealing what other people had worked hard to produce. They didn't produce anything. They let other people produce it, and then they went in and ravaged it, taking it for themselves. And no doubt, when they had spied upon the nation of Israel, they spotted what they concluded was very vulnerable prey. They spotted a weak people, emaciated, suffering from lack of nourishment, tired, hot, weary, coming out of slavery, worn at the precipice of defeat. No real means of defending themselves. Verse 9, so Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men, go out and fight with Amalek. Now, that's an important statement for a couple of different reasons. One, it introduces us for the first time to Joshua. It's the first time we're introduced to Joshua in the Bible. Joshua, of course, was Moses' lieutenant and principal aide. But more important is what Moses tells Joshua to do. Go out and fight, which are some amazing first words to this young man who would soon be the leader of the nation of Israel. You know why those were important first words? Because it was an impossible assignment. Go out and fight the Amalekites. Now, Joshua knew that he had a bunch of men, thousands of Israelis in the camp, but not one of them had ever fought a real battle. In fact, for their entire lives, they'd been conditioned as slaves not to fight back because to fight back against an opponent could have resulted in imminent death. So this assignment didn't bode well because they didn't have any weapons. They, they were slave people. They weren't an army. They'd never been trained in military tactics. So they had no weapons. They had no training. They had no real strategy. And I'm sure Joshua's initial response to this command of Moses to go out and fight against Amalek, it was probably with a response like, fight with what? With rocks? Against an organized army with weapons? So Joshua, the obedient son that he is, goes around and I'd imagine gathers up as many well-bodied men as he can find, tells them to grab anything that could possibly be used as a weapon, and tries to organize them as best as he can for the fight to come. It's kind of like what the British had to do when their entire army was trapped at Dunkirk early in the days of World War II. They were trapped on the French coast only 20 miles away from their homeland across the English Channel, but they had no means to get back across. It was the entire British Expeditionary Force, 300,000 men, and they were surrounded on land by the German army to the north, to the east, and to the south, and they had a body of water 20 miles wide to their west. They were totally hemmed in. And Churchill knew there was no way to win the war if that army capitulated to Germany, because it was a whole British army for the most part. And so he launches what was known as Operation Dynamo, which involved the calling up not only of as many British naval vessels as they could possibly muster, but they called together every conceivable fishing boat, every pleasure craft, this ragtag navy 
of British seafaring people. They gathered together as many boats of any kind from volunteers who would be willing to guide them over to the French coast and back carrying as many British soldiers on the boat as they possibly could. Those boats were not armed. Those boats had no artillery. Many of the people who were captaining those ships had no training militarily whatsoever. And here's what's beautiful. Somehow, they managed to get almost all of those men back across. One of the most amazing displays of courage in the face of overwhelming odds in modern history. At the Red Sea, the same thing happened. The nation of Israel were told by Moses, their leader, to stand still and do nothing and the Lord will fight for you. But here's the thing. Here, the command is totally different. Here, they have to engage. Here, they are instructed not to stand still but to fight. And sometimes that's what God will tell you as well. Sometimes God will come to you and say, look, don't just do something, stand there. And sometimes he'll come and he'll say, don't just stand there, do something. Sometimes God will come to you and he'll say, be still and know. And other times he'll come to you and he'll say, get up and fight. And when he does, a second principle that we learn is that we need others with us in the fight. He doesn't want us to fight alone. God wants to engage others with us in the battles of life. One of the enduring images from Exodus is that of Moses standing high upon that rocky hill, looking out over the battlefield, staff of God firmly in his grasp, with that hand lifted high, holding the rod toward heaven. And you know the story. It's one of the most familiar in the Bible. When his hands were lifted high, Israel began to proceed with force and in ways that were sure to lead to victory. But when his hands started to droop and when his hands started to drop and the battlers could not see From the battlefield, the staff of God lifted high. Then the Amalekites began to take control, and the Israelites began to get pushed back. I don't know if you've ever tried to hold your arms up for very very long. Hold them up high over your head sometime. Just see how long you can do that, especially if you're holding something in your hand. But you could probably guess, if you've never done it before, it's not an easy thing to do, especially if you're an 80-year-old man like Moses was. But fortunately for Moses, there were a couple of men that went up with him on the hillside that day to help him out. One named Aaron, one named Hur. Aaron, of course, was the brother of Moses who was with Moses every step of the way from the time that they left their father-in-law Jethro's camp out in the wilderness of the Sinai and went and obeyed the call of God to instruct Pharaoh to let the people of God go Aaron, of course, served as the principal spokesman for Moses. We might call him today as director of communications. The other man was her. We don't know much about her other than he was the son of Caleb, a contemporary of Joshua. Caleb, of course, would become one of the most renowned characters in all of Old Testament history. His son was her, and her was one of those men. Legend has it. We don't know if it's true or not, but uh, Jewish teaching is that her eventually married the sister of Moses, Miriam. But we don't know that. 
what we do know is that these are really important guys, particularly as it related to the battle was being fought. They come alongside Moses, and in his time of weariness, personal struggle, they help him to bear under the burden so that he doesn't have to do it alone. The first thing they do is they gather a stone for him to set upon so he doesn't have to stand the whole time. They provide rest for Moses. And then they position themselves alongside of the leader of Israel, one on the right and the other on the left, helping Moses to steady his weary hands through the day. So Joshua and the leadership and the people of Israel could see Moses lifting high the rod of God in order that they might be led to a great victory before the sun went down that very day. So this is not an insignificant matter. Because if Moses' hands don't stay lifted high, there's probably no hope for the people of Israel to win the battle. It's an important deal. Other people seeing a need and meeting it was the difference between God's people either winning the battle or losing the battle that important day in the desert. And this is the way God's people is supposed to function. This is the principal reason, or one of them anyway, why we have this great body called the church. Because when God saves us, he doesn't save us to journey through life alone. He doesn't save us to grow alone. He doesn't save us to fight our inevitable battles all by ourselves. God saves us, and then the first thing that he does is he groups us in a community of faith to live out our witnesses as disciples together to worship God, and to connect with others as we together serve the world. And here's what's important. When God saves us, sometimes God, inevitably, God calls us to different tasks. He doesn't use us all the same way, and God will save some, and God will call them sometimes to task equivalent to task the size of the one that he gave to Moses. But that doesn't happen every day, and it doesn't happen with most people. Most of the time, God will call people like you and me to ministries much more like Aaron's and hers than like Moses. And opportunities to do what those two men did abound practically every day of our life. May I ask you a question this morning? Who do you know that needs somebody to come alongside them in these important days, in these desperate times, and help them by lifting up their weary hands and their burdened arms and their burdened hearts in order that they might continue the journey with faithfulness and joy. Do you know anybody like that? You might say, well, Pastor, man, I'll tell you, I'll be glad to help anybody who needs help. All anybody has to do is ask. If you're listening, shout amen so I can hear you. They're never going to ask. They're not going to ask you for help. They're not going to admit that their arms are heavy and that their hearts are burdened and that they don't have all their stuff together in life. They're not going to admit that and they're not going to call you and say, can you come over and help me because I need help. Oh, I know they will sometimes, but it's very, very rare. Most people would rather just go into the hospital and die as to ask anybody to help them out. 
And there's nothing, by the way, in this text that indicates Moses ever asked anybody one time to go up on the hill and help him. They just, these men practiced the ministry of presence. And they just determined that they were going to be there. They saw a need and they took initiative. And they got involved. And they met the need. This is what believers do. Galatians 6. Bear one another's burdens. And so fulfill the law of Christ. That's not a suggestion, brothers and sisters. That's an imperative in the Greek New Testament. It's an expectation of God. God expects us to have a spiritual antenna that's circulating around us. You say, well, I don't have the gift of mercy. It doesn't matter. This is a command not given to those who are possessed of the gift of mercy, graced by God. And I'm thankful for those who have that gift. But this is a command that's addressed to everybody. We're all to be attentive to needs. We're all to step in and meet needs when we become aware of them. You say, well, how do we do that? Well, multiplied hundreds of different ways. You encourage somebody by taking a meal. You encourage somebody by paying a bill. You encourage somebody by loaning them a car or by buying them some much-needed clothes, or by simply sending a note, or providing a means of verbal encouragement, or praying for them, and then letting them know that you're praying for them, whatever the case might be. There's a million different ways that you can serve people in this way and help bear their burdens so that they're not overwhelmed by the tsunami of life. Who do you know that has weary hands and tired arms that you can help lift up so that God can bring forth a victory. You may be the channel of victory that God wants to use in another person's life. The question is, are you willing and are you available? Because opportunities abound. So identify somebody and then do something to help lift them up because we're all in the battle together. And God makes it clear. We need others to fight alongside us, and God expects us to be willing to engage in the battle with others. And then a third thing that we learn from this passage is that the source of our victory is not so much in anything that we bring to the table, but the source of our victory, of course, is the power of God. Even when God takes us directly into the arena to face a hostile enemy, Even when it's a situation other than a Red Sea-like experience where God just says, listen, you just stand still. You don't have to do a thing. You don't have to do a thing. Just let me do all the fight. That won't always be the case. Sometimes God will say, get into the arena and fight. But it's important to remember that even when he does that, it's not incumbent upon us to fight alone. And this time I'm talking about in a spiritual sense. When the victory comes, it will be God who ultimately brings the victory, even though we're in the arena fighting hard. And the important thing to remember is whenever God bids you into an arena of battle, the inescapable truth from the Word of God is that we never are in the arena alone, even when we're alone, without any physical presence outside of ourselves. 
God is with us. And that's enough for us to be the victor. Now, what was the point, the whole point of Moses lifting up his hands in the first place, there high up on the hill overlooking the battlefield? Well, the Scripture doesn't tell us why, it just tells us that. It tells us that he did. Some say that Moses was engaged in prayer, that that's a prayerful posture of Moses, and that well be, may well be the case. I can't imagine Moses not praying. And standing with lifted hands toward heaven was, of course, one of the ways that a Jew customarily approached the throne of God in prayer. And so I think that probably it's safe to say that Moses was indeed praying, but I don't think that's the real point behind him raising his hands, particularly with one of them gripping the staff of God. I think the real point was what was in Moses' hand, the rod of God. Remember what that staff or that rod represented. That staff represented the very power and the presence of God among His people, not only with Moses, but among the very people of God. And that's why God instructed Moses way back at the beginning of Exodus when he went down to Egypt for the first time to take that rod along with him. Never let that rod leave your side. Take it with him on your journey. When you get there, dip it in the Nile. When I tell you, and the Nile will turn to blood, stretch it out over the Red Sea and watch the waters part. Lift it up over the field of battle. And watch a ragtag group of vagabonds begin to kick some Amalekite tail and do the impossible and bring home the victory. Moses wasn't responsible for any of those miracles. God was. But Moses was faithful to do exactly what God told him. And Moses recognized that that rod represented something that lay outside of himself and his own abilities. And the smartest thing that he could do was be obedient with the presence and the power of God. And that's why he's raising his hand high over that field of battle, because every time the people of God looked up and they saw their leader up there holding high the rod of God on that rocky hill, they were empowered and encouraged to press on in the fight. But whenever Moses and their view of Moses was eclipsed and they couldn't see the rod, they couldn't see their leader, they couldn't see the presence and the power of God symbolized in that rod. Whenever Moses dropped his hands and the rod disappeared from view, the people lost their nerve and they wilted. And they began to lose. Now, you don't have a rod of God and Neither do I, but I got something better. I got the Word of God. Can somebody say amen this morning? I got the Word of God before me, and I've got the Spirit of God within me. That makes the armament that God has given to me even better than a rod that I can't keep up with. I'm liable to lose the rod of God. But I'll never lose the Word of God planted deep within my heart, and I'll never lose the Spirit of God who lives within me for all of eternity. The Bible says that the weapons of our warfare are not worldly, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. And the spiritual weapon, let me just let you in on a little insight. The spiritual weapon that God gives to us that He wants us to live outfitted with every day is indeed a weapon called prayer. James will say in James chapter 5, is any among you suffering? 
Prescription, let him pray. Prayer is our pipeline to God. Maybe the most important spiritual weapon and the arsenal of weapons spiritually that God gives us. But often one that we tend to lose, like I would lose that rod if I had to keep up with it. Because we have the gift of prayer and sadly most of us neglect it. We don't use it. And man, when we neglect prayer, it, it, the consequence is really not much different than Moses' rod being lowered and eclipsed from view. You'll start to lose the battle when you lose the weapon of prayer because the effect of not praying is to give the devil a foothold. And he'll start to push your life backwards and make a mess of it. There'll be a loss of power in your life when you don't pray. There'll be a loss of confusion or of the presence of confusion. There'll be the prospect of defeat. But with it, when God's people pray, powerful things happen. Because when God's people pray, we are never separated from the power of God. Call unto me, God tells his people. Call unto me, and I will answer you and show you great and magnificent things that you do not know. Now, let's look at how the passage concludes. Verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And that prophecy would indeed prove to be the case. This is the first time in the book of Exodus we see an altar actually being built. And the purpose for that altar was not sacrificial because the people of Israel were going to move on. The purpose of the altar is memorial. I was in Washington, D.C., last September with a number of our church who were up there on a choir tour, and I spent a little bit of time with them meandering around the city of Washington, which of course is a city that's just totally given over to memorials all over the landscape, a memorial to this person or to that person, to this event or to that event. That's the purpose of this altar. Now, they wouldn't always see the altar because indeed they were going to move along, but God tells Moses at the same time, write it in a book, take the book with you. Write it down, which is always a good spiritual discipline to do when the Lord moves in magnificent ways in your life. Write it down in a book that you can pass down in your family from generation to generation. Let others know in written form what the Lord has done for you. And they would have that, the people of Israel. And as Moses built that altar, significantly he gives it a name, Jehovah Nisi. And by doing so, he reveals to us another of the many biblical names for God in the Bible. Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Rapha, here Jehovah Nisi, which is a name that means the Lord is my 
banner, which reveals something about how God wants us to view the battles we fight. The Lord is my banner. You know what a banner is, don't you? It's a military standard. It's a flag, a standard as the uh, armed services calls it. It's a flag that serves as a logistical signpost in times past more so probably than today when we've gotten so sophisticated technologically on the battlefield. But in in previous times, for sure, that banner was this logistical signpost for when times got confused in battle. That banner, that massive flag, many times there was more than one and of a different kind. And those banners were never to hit the ground. When they hit the ground, they were to be elevated all the time because the assembled army needed to be able to see them because they were rallying points. And that's why the instruction was, man, it was a great honor to be a standard bearer in an army in times past. If that thing falls to the ground, if you're close by, you drop your weapon and you pick up the banner, pick up the standard, because that was the rallying point around which the soldiers could be regathered and around which they could regroup. If it was time to advance, rally around the standard. If, if it was time to retreat, look for the banner. Never get too far from the banner because otherwise there's sure confusion. You won't know what to do and you won't know where to go. And we all have a banner of some kind, something that's elevated in our life that serves as a mark something that we look to for confidence and security when things become chaotic. Sometimes the banner is another person, a source of security and trust in our lives. Sometimes the banner is a bank account. In these crazy times, some of y'all check your investment portfolios five and six times a day to find out what they're doing. You get nervous when the market starts to fall, and that's because you're bank account, your investment account is a banner in your life. What's the standard that's lifted high in your life around which you organize the entirety of your life in order that your life might press forward for the glory of God in dangerous and uncertain times? Moses had the best answer of all. The Lord is my banner. And he should be yours too. For us today, if we were asked that question, we might answer, for me, my banner is Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul meant when he wrote to the Philippians. For to me, to live is Christ. Christ is my banner. The cross is my banner. Don't you think that's what Jesus meant when he said in John chapter 12, and I, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. So when your weary hands need lifting, brothers and sisters, lift high the Christ, lift high the cross, run to Jesus. Because we have a Savior who in an even greater way than Moses lifted up his arms and spread them wide that they may be nailed to a crossbeam of wood as he died to give us a victory that we could never in a million years achieve all by ourselves.
So as you journey, let Christ be the banner in your life. And as you journey, why don't you be the presence of Christ to others with weary hands and burdened hearts? Identify a need and lift somebody up because your presence may well be the difference between victory and defeat in somebody's life.